Welcome back to City Insight. There's a lot of discussion right now about what the proper role of cities is in the Canadian Federation. And do we, for example, need to talk about charter cities? Do we need to talk about constitutional amendment? And I have opinions about uh, uh, those, those subjects. But I think one of the things about the pandemic that is really illuminating is, you know, that this isn't just a hypothetical conversation, right? This isn't a matter of obscure legal jargon, right? The question of jurisdiction literally determines where the money goes. This is John Michael McGrath, digital media producer, writer, and columnist at TVO.org. As a regular commentator on the relationship between the government of Ontario and that province's municipalities, John Michael has spent a lot of time analyzing the interplay between different levels of government throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Who has authority over what, and who has responsibility to act and where? There was a big announcement over the summer of the federal government and the provinces coming to an agreement over uh, how to help fund uh, cities and specifically big city transit, uh, which has suffered enormously during the pandemic. And it was a good announcement and it made billions of dollars in federal money available to cities. But it's going through the provinces first right. because that was the agreement that they had to get. So, you know, it is something that I think we do need to discuss uh, after the pandemic, you know, when the when the vaccines are, are all in people's arms. And uh, I think, you know, we need to have that conversation about what does a 21st century model of municipal government look like? And, you know, is it, I, I don't think it is going to be sustainable anymore to take the, the document of 1867 and assume that that is all we are ever allowed to do about municipalities from here until the end of time. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and this is City Insight, Canada's constitutional city crisis. In this series, we'll explore the sometimes fraught relationship our local governments have with their provincial and federal counterparts and explain ways of reimagining that relationship. So, John Michael, I wanted to ask you specifically about jurisdiction through this pandemic. There's been a lot of talk about it, a mix of different levels of government, sometimes stepping over each other's toes in some cases, and then in other cases trying to pass the buck completely. So uh, <laughs> what have you been seeing, uh, uh, you know, from, from the early days to this second wave that we see ourselves in now? I mean, the early wave was interesting because so much of the pandemic response was funneled directly through the provincial cabinet and very little in the way of decision making, so to speak, uh, was happening at the local level. Public health officers had their role, of course. They had a, a very important role in terms of responding to actual illness in the community. But in terms of those early decisions about when to lock down, what that lockdown looked like, uh, that 
was almost entirely driven by cabinet and uh, in an advisory role of the provincial chief medical officer. As the pandemic has moved on, the provincial government has periodically tried to push responsibility out to the local medical officers of health. And (laughs) there's two possible explanations for this, uh, one sincere and one cynical, depending on uh, how you want to look at it. Let's uh, call it the the virtuous or perhaps uh, sincere explanation is that in law, the government has always maintained that the local medical officers of health actually are better suited and have more freedom to act uh, than the province's chief medical officer necessarily does. It is also the case, uh, if you want to take the the cynical bent, that uh, I, I think during the summer, especially when those case counts were lower and there was a, a sense that as much as everybody had been warned about the fall wave, I, I think there was a belief that maybe we were through the worst of it. There was also, I think, a belief that the province was done with the the major policy changes that it was going to have to make to get through the pandemic, that we were in a, a pretty stable situation and it would be up to the local medical officers to handle whatever local variations there were. Obviously, the fall wave has totally shattered that illusion. And now we are back in a situation where it's really being led by cabinet. And I think that most local medical officers that you've seen around the province would say they're pretty happy with that outcome. They obviously still retain really substantial powers to act. (laughs) Eileen Davila has had to close a barbecue joint in Toronto's West End during this pandemic because the guy was, you know, flagrantly violating public health orders. But I I think that from the the perspective of, of local medical officers, the province is really best suited to be making the kind of big coordinating decisions that uh, local medical officers sort of by definition really can't do very well. Right. Uh, you mentioned Medical Officer of Health for Toronto, Dr. Eileen Davila. Early in the pandemic, uh, Dr. Davila was sort of reticent to use what you saw was uh, within her jurisdiction and within her mandate to do things like uh, call for uh, mandatory masks or uh, shutter businesses. As you say, that has kind of changed, and, and we did see, as this uh, second wave of the pandemic really ramped up, we did see Dr. Davila order uh, small dining rooms closed, that sort of thing. Previously, I think she had said that she was under advice that she may be in some legal trouble if she used those powers, which I think I've read you say that uh, that's not really a concern, and it, it is within her powers to, to do these kind of things. Yeah, so I should be careful about saying that I am not a lawyer, um, (laughs) nor am I a doctor. (laughs) Um, But I have, you know, spent, Lord, uh, more than a decade now uh, studying municipal politics and municipal policy. And I've read like the Municipal Act, and I've read lots of other pieces of municipal legislation and the City of Toronto Act. And there's almost nothing to compare it to in terms of the breadth of the legal powers that uh, somebody in uh, Dr. Davila's position has. Uh, she has the power to close businesses, to compel people, to adhere to quarantines, to ask them to engage in any sort of, of other activity and to, to follow that up with the force of law, really with extraordinary breadth. And Ontario courts have already, once in this pandemic in um, Haldeman-Norfolk, I believe, uh, have already 
backed up uh, a local medical officer's decision when that was uh, challenged by a local business. So it was it was extremely frustrating in a sense of Dr. Davila was was given legal advice. The, the, as far as we can tell, the the city solicitor, the the city of Toronto's chief legal officer, said that she would be acting outside of her powers if she, for example, tried to force bars and restaurants not to uh, serve food or or drink indoors. Again, I am not a lawyer. It was a very frustrating uh, argument for me because it, it seems to be spelled out pretty clearly in the law that that is, in fact, within her powers. And the argument that she would be held personally legally liable if she had been found to breach her powers was also, let's say, deeply suspect uh, because, again, the HPPA very explicitly uh, lowers the the threat of legal liability for medical officers. I wanted to ask you uh, about another kind of uh, irony, uh, so- something you wrote about a, a couple of months ago. You had two kind of examples that seem to contradict each other, where in one case, Premier Ontario Premier Doug Ford is saying that uh, if the federal government didn't uh, relax the sort of 14-day mandatory quarantine rule, he would find ways around that. And then on the other hand, the Trudeau government was looking into uh, piping money directly into the city of Ottawa, which uh, sort of got under Premier Ford's skin, uh, <laughs> saying that that's not their jurisdiction. So uh, again, the, these battles over jurisdictions through this pandemic have been interesting, uh, looking at the different levels of government. Yeah, this is an old story, uh, both for Ontario specifically and for the provinces generally. They uh, definitely have a view of Canadian federalism uh, that says, you know, Everything that's yours is mine, and everything that's mine is mine. Right. <laughs> um, and so, the the context of that um, uh, that column that I wrote for TVO was the premier saying that if the feds couldn't get staff into Canadian airports, and, and in, the, in the Ontario context, we're talking specifically about Ottawa and Pearson, uh, then he was going to send provincial workers to test and isolate people, whether that was his jurisdiction or not, and then. You know, in almost the same breath, I think that was actually separated by a day or two. Um, the the premier said that the idea of the federal government sending money directly to cities was a, a huge violation of prov- provincial jurisdiction, and uh, the feds should you know stick to their jurisdiction and keep their nose out of the provinces. So, what has navigating the pandemic felt like from a Canadian mayor's perspective? Dan Matheson is the mayor of Stratford, Ontario. It's a picturesque city of about 31,000, whose global reputation revolves around its annual Shakespeare Festival. Sadly, COVID forced the festival to go dark this year. How does a city built on live performances for mass audiences and a regular influx of tourists cope? Well, it's been very challenging for the local economy, uh, primarily uh, because, of course, the theatre season uh, brings in about a half a million patrons to the theaters in a season you overlay that with about another million of just plain tourists that want to come to stratford to visit the historic downtown core and the retail shops as well as the inns and b&bs and great restaurants uh, along with our famous parks and uh, we didn't see that this year so economically we had a real challenge people who work in retail and tourism and hospitality and in cultural institutions here, didn't have work. And that caused a big issue. We also then had the 
challenge of the lockdown in early spring, which put some of those very unique shops in a perilous economic situation uh, where they're used to having a million and a half visitors a year, making the bulk of their income in a seven, eight month season and not actually having that season materialize this year. You know, that led, of course, to some people feeling very bleak about their economic and and, uh, social future. And it left a lot of families concerned. On the municipal level, what what has been the the city of Stratford's response to the pandemic? Well, like many communities across this country, we were forced to make a number of cuts in our spending, uh, closing some facilities, slowly opening others, uh, laying off staff for a period of time. Those that were still working were asked to take a pay cut if they were in the management field. Council members took a pay cut for a period of time. We didn't plant flowers in a community that is historically proud of our gardens and open spaces. We didn't do that as a way to save money. And we really tried to reel in our spending. And what we did in in return, though, was pivot towards creating an economy for our region, the Huron-Perth region, so people would feel confident to come to Stratford and spend money, maybe go to the restaurants, go to the shops, and at least try to have some form of a retail summer period. And uh, all levels of government are affected by this pandemic, and and it takes all levels of government to respond to it. But uh, I have to imagine that the the most important point of contact for a town like Stratford in COVID-19 has been the, the provincial level of government. What has been your relationship with the provincial government in terms of dealing with this crisis? Um, what have they done and uh, what, what do you hope to see? So we've had uh, good relations with the provincial government through this. They have provided some funding through the Small Business Enterprise Centre that helped support local industry, and we, we rolled that money out. Uh, they have provided us support as it relates to interim or emergency funding for the city for increased costs around transportation lost revenue, increased cleaning, social and public housing, and emergency shelter. Uh, So they provided funding. I've also had the opportunity to present to two provincial committees, uh, first the Committee on Finance uh, in the province, and then, of course, on the economic recovery. And that's given us an opportunity to take our story right to the members of the legislature who are, of course, helping to formulate government policy and make those decisions. And what were their responses when you had the opportunity to speak with them? Well, they're they're very supportive, right from our local MP, Randy Pettipiece, right through to the provincial cabinet ministers. Members of the opposition were very good. They They asked very strategic questions. They reached out for more information. I really felt that they were making every effort to understand the complexity of the challenges that were being faced, not just by our community, but communities all over the province, depending on your geography, your demographic, your size, your location. Uh, I, I think it was important for us to have those dialogues. Mm-hmm. And I, I really felt they were uh, they were good. As, as we saw the fall economic statement by Minister Phillips, the finance minister, come out a few weeks ago, he seemed to have a really good understanding of what communities needed, and it was reflected within that. And in terms of the relationship with the federal government, I suppose a, a place like Stratford is mostly looking for funding to deal with the pandemic from that level of government. Well, we are. And because of the Stratford Festival being a national cultural icon, uh, we look to them. I've had conversations not only with Minister Gibo, the federal heritage and culture minister, but uh, Parliamentary Secretary 
Kate Young from London, who represents FedDeb, the Federal Development Agency of Southern Ontario, along with Melanie Jolie, the minister responsible for FedDev. They provided over a million and a half dollars to our local community for us to help stimulate and run business improvement, business stability programs to not only provide uh, funding for them, but also to uh, provide mentorship, mental health services, and then retraining opportunities for staff. So we've, we've worked with the federal government on both those levels, and we're very happy with the way they responded to our inquiries. So in terms of a pandemic response, this crisis seems to have been a moment uh, where all three levels of government have managed to come together. I would say this is one of those times when you're challenged through economic turmoil and, and heartache, where you really need to all just put your shoulder to the wheel and go forward. And in this case, that is exactly what happened. There was no, uh, not my job, not my area. That's your problem, not mine. Right. Not that at all. Everybody put their shoulder to the wheel and we're all driven towards finding solutions and providing information that helped improve the lot of everybody. That said, with, with the hindsight of the past 10 months and with uh, you know an indeterminate amount of months, uh, still uh, to look forward to of this pandemic. Were there any tools, think of municipal autonomy, uh, that would have helped you address this pandemic uh, or something that you'd like to see in place for the next disaster, um, hopefully far, far in the future? So where I really believe is that municipalities need some flexibility in their budgeting. We had to make deep cuts strategically and quickly because we're not allowed to run a deficit. Mm -hmm. And that led us to have to, in a time when people needed some type of consistency in their life, we had to cut off services and things that people come to expect. We debated closing our pool this summer as a cost savings measure. We did a lot of things that we probably wouldn't have wanted to do, but because of the fiscal box that we're put in, we had to. So if there was one thing I'd like is that we could discuss with senior levels of government the opportunity for us to be treated like every other order of government and have some autonomy as it relates to our finances. And when you say autonomy uh, for finances, I, I know you're, you don't support the ability for municipalities to run a deficit. Uh, I saw you speaking on a, a panel on TVO. Are, are these, are we talking revenue tools, that sort of thing? I think what we really need to see is the flexibility around some of our revenue tools so that we can bring cash forward, uh, maybe reallocate provincial funding that went towards certain programs that maybe aren't going to be offered and allow us to repurpose it towards areas where we need to spend the money. And I think those are some of the things we need to do. I'm not looking for a blank check for municipalities to start running another uh, level of deficit in the country. What I believe they need to look at doing, though, is saying, you know, we gave you money to purchase uh, buses this year. Right. Maybe you should be able to stall doing that and use that money to get yourself through that. Or maybe you can use it now instead of for capital to support the operating expense because, of course, you have to operate public transit, but there's no revenue to back up the service because you're, there's just not as many users as normally. That's that's an interesting idea. Is, is it something that you talk about with other Ontario municipal leaders? Uh, I have spoke to them, and I believe many other ones share some of the same thoughts with regard to that. And so what does that take to, to see something like that get implemented? Well, it really comes down to the provincial government looking at the Municipal Act and being willing to make that change. And I'm sometimes I'm not convinced that, uh, that they want to make it because it, it then revolves 
back to the municipality of trusting all 444 municipalities to make a good judgment and good decision. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes they just assume that we're not, uh, we're not capable of that. Well, uh, Mayor Matheson, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Sticking with Ontario, Windsor is a mid-sized city on the United States border, just across the water from the city of Detroit. It's an area surrounded by farmland, employing many temporary foreign workers, a community that saw significant outbreaks, and residents, including healthcare professionals, who regularly cross the border for work. I asked Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins about the difficulties of navigating these unique issues, which became major areas of concern during the pandemic. Uh, so, Mayor, I wanted to begin by asking you, uh, a lot of the outbreaks in the Windsor area were uh, around the agricultural sector and especially the, the migrant worker population. So I was wondering if you were able to work with the other levels of government to uh, try and protect those workers, care for the ones who contracted COVID and sort of prevent the spread in that area. Yeah, it was a real thorny issue, uh, especially at the beginning when it really exploded. I mean, Patty Haidu, the federal health minister, said that we had the worst outbreak in the entire nation at the time. Right. And of course, the setting in which a lot of these folks live in bunkhouses, it's sort of the perfect vehicle for the spread of COVID-19. And so we saw high numbers, especially at the beginning. We know that it's a complex situation involving, you know, literally about 8,000 people spread across 175 farms. And many considerations because there are multiple levels of government involved in terms of federal government and immigration and setting some of the rules. And, of course, the provincial government responsible for agriculture, labor uh, and health. And then us at the municipal level having the problem. And uh, it was even more complex because we're all under the head of one health unit. And so what happens out in Essex County in the agriculture sector affects the big city in the region, which is us. And although we really don't have any material farms to speak of, you know, we were being held back at one point from moving to to stage three because of the situation that was going on on the farms. And so to answer your question directly, we had good cooperation once we got enough traction, good cooperation, especially from the provincial government applying the right resources down here to really help get our arms around the problem uh, and help us, along with federal government resources, set up an isolation and recovery center that is a place where these folks can go, isolate, get well, and then go back to work. Right. And another challenge that is unique to a city like Windsor, because of your situation right on the U.S. border, is uh, you have a lot of people who are actually employed across the border, uh, especially essential workers. I read a piece about healthcare workers that actually make the commute uh, in usual times from Windsor to Detroit, uh, you know, care centers around that area. So I imagine that took some coordination with the federal government, especially in regards to guidelines for border crossing and whether or not there should be the 14-day quarantine or which sector of employees or, or visitors have to quarantine. That, that, that had to be hairy, as you say. Uh, it was it was a very difficult situation, especially at the beginning. And you can imagine the border's been closed since the middle of March. Uh, it's the longest closure of the Canada-U.S. border, the land border, in in my lifetime and certainly in, in known history. And so it just speaks to the, the magnitude of the issue. And, and clearly in a, in a border city like ours, where we have 1,600 healthcare workers who cross the border every day from my community to go work and, and work in hospitals, mostly in Detroit, Mm -hmm. It can become a very difficult situation very, very quickly. 
uh, mostly difficult for people in Detroit or the hospitals in Detroit, uh, many of which would have to literally just close down. They wouldn't be able to staff their hospitals adequately without the, the, the workers that come from Windsor. And so it was an interesting situation that I think has largely resolved itself. But at the very beginning, you know, we were calling all frontline workers, especially nurses and healthcare professionals, we were calling them heroes. And the people who crossed the border here to go work in Detroit, they may have been heroes over in Michigan, but when they came back to get home, uh, come back to, you know, home here in Canada, we were vilifying them. Uh, They couldn't go into the LCBO and buy a bottle of wine because they were being asked whether they had been out of the country in the last 14 days. And each of them, if they actually answered the question, honestly, they were prohibited from entering the LCBO and buying a bottle of wine. So heroes on one hand, villains on the other. And I think there was a lot of fear at the very, very beginning where people weren't sure how this could spread, how fast it could spread. They they saw healthcare workers uh, as the sort of vector for spread of COVID-19 in Windsor. And the, and the numbers never proved that way. In fact, you know, sensible people just said, listen, if I'm going to a hospital in Michigan, what's the difference if I go there or I or I work in Windsor? I have to put on full PPE before I deal with patients anyway and take the exact same precautions. And so over time, that sort of resolved itself. And, you know, they've been able to cross without hiccup uh, at the border. I'm sure many are are quite happy to cross because they've never had easier border crossings. Uh, They've never had to wait in line to cross the border. Uh, But for the last eight months, they've had it really, really good in terms of getting to and from work. And so it's working just fine. In fact, on the commercial traffic side, we see about 85 to 90 percent of commercial traffic has has resumed uh, compared to uh, pre-COVID. And all the essential workers are still able to cross and have been able to do so all throughout. When you say it resolved itself, what, what did that resolution look like? Well, it was it was really just in the minds of people. You know, they never had an issue crossing. That pathway was always open. There was never a hiccup. But there were there were times when it became very, very difficult in in the minds of people who lived here because they weren't sure whether or not that activity was safe. And I think the longer we've we've all dealt with COVID, the more we realize what we're dealing with and how to take appropriate precautions based on our circumstances, whether it's family, whether it's work circumstances or other things that people are looking for, considering. Um, in terms of the, those precautions, uh, when we're talking about guidelines, you yourself found yourself on the wrong side of the province's new color-coded COVID restrictions, uh, dining at a table of eight uh, when only six were allowed under the orange, uh, I guess, restrictions that Windsor is under. Were you yourself confused by the guidelines? And has it been difficult for Windsor as a city to adapt to the provincial guidelines as they change? You know, I, I think it's it's actually, you know, your question is interesting because you, you may not even know, but in your question, you talked about six in the orange category. And in fact, we're in orange now and it's only four. Okay. And I don't mean that, I don't say that to to criticize you for what you said, but it just... It, it shows that in our case, the guidelines have changed twice in two weeks. Likely we're going to go to the red category on Friday, which means they'll change three times in three weeks. And in addition to the provincial guidelines, you also have the health unit who's putting out guidance and trying to give uh, good advice to residents as well. So there is no doubt that there is confusion uh, amongst many residents when it comes to what the right rules are at the right place at the right time. I found myself in that exact same situation where uh, you know, like you say, I was at a, a dinner in a restaurant with there were a total of eight of us and the rule said there could only be six at the table. We all thought we were in compliance. In fact, the restaurant set the table for eight thinking they were in compliance as well. 
Uh, so I sit in the middle of a restaurant as mayor where I'm easily recognizable, not attempting to hide myself or go in a back room to have a, a dinner party uh, and even posing for photographs because I thought, hey, I'm, 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 I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm within the rules. And when it was pointed out to me, uh, when someone challenged me on it and we looked at it, I found out, in fact, I did something that was against the rules. And so right away, I owned up to it, take ownership. I mean, of, of all people in the city who should know with precision what those rules are, it should be me. I'm the leader of the city. I'm accountable. I'm responsible to know those rules. I didn't know that rule. And I think many people find themselves so confused. And so the best advice I've said to folks is it's readily available. Just go to a browser, type in COVID Framework Ontario, and you'll be able to pull it up and see precisely what you're able to do in each color category at each time. I've been asking mayors, any mayor that will talk to me, about uh, the relationship between their municipality and other levels of government, specifically the level of autonomy or the lack of autonomy that cities have in Canada. And I'm just wondering, in terms of COVID and, and navigating this pandemic, for Windsor, could it be improved if maybe cities had more autonomy? Uh, it sounds like a lot of the examples we've been talking about, you've actually managed to work with the different levels of government to find solutions. But could could those relationships be improved? And, and would that help as we still continue to navigate this pandemic? Well, I would say in my 14 years as a municipally elected person and, and going into my sixth as mayor, uh, I can say that there has never been better cooperation between all three levels of government except in the last eight months. It's been remarkable to see how people are coming together and working together across party lines uh, where there are interests that may not be always in common in normal times. They certainly present themselves in a more common way when you're dealing with the great equalizer called COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, if I've called the prime minister, I get a call back. The premier has been here. He's called a dozen times. I can get any cabinet minister on the phone. There is a you know, a high degree of just let's, I got to find out what the issue is. Time is of the essence and how can we resolve the issue? I've never seen better alignment between three levels of government except in the last eight months. It's been incredible to see. Could it be improved? Perhaps. I, I've not given it a whole lot of thought in terms of, you know, how that might be improved. I, I think there are ways to streamline some of the decision-making during a pandemic. And, you know, I know Ontario was already looking at that by by looking at their health unit structure and whether the current structure is the best structure. Uh, and that's something that they'll have, I'm sure, on their plate uh, at the right time. But from my perspective, it's it's been a horrible eight months having to deal with a global pandemic, which has disrupted everything. But it's been a great time to be able to work with other colleagues just to try and address situations that we have in common. And at the end of the day, trying to make sure we keep people safe and keep them well. Is there a lesson then for, you know, happier times post-pandemic that we can gain from the relationships you've experienced out of necessity because there's a global emergency? You know, this is one thing, like I say, COVID has been the great equalizer. It's, it's demonstrated the weaknesses in every single system and every single government, probably in every single household as well. And when you're not so worried about trying to beat your opponent and really you have a common goal just to work with them to try and get good information out, make decisions at the federal level, making decisions to get money into people's hands so they can survive through a difficult time and then try and figure out a transition in the economy, the provincial level dealing with, you know, health and getting schools back up and going so that parents can get to work and kids can learn. And then at the municipal level, we have all everything plays out at the municipal level, whether it's issues right. related to homelessness or or other things, they all play out on the streets and we're the ones that are most accessible. And so 
we we deal with all of these things and and are you know from, even from the border perspective, people calling, ministers calling, saying just I just need the unbiased, unfiltered person's view of what's going on in the city related to the border on this particular facet of that uh, conversation. It's just been it's been very very harmonious, but I'm I'm not. I'm not naive enough to believe that it won't revert back to a more partisan basis at other levels of government as things normalize in the future. The question we're trying to explore in this series is whether or not Canadian municipalities need more autonomy. Do they need more power over their own jurisdiction to realize their full potential? In the context of the pandemic, where mayors Matheson and Dilkins both feel like there's been a refreshing harmony between the three levels of government. Would the pandemic response have gone smoother with more local autonomy? Let's return to my chat with John Michael McGrath. To bring it back to the question of um, our, our local medical officers of health, I will say this: that whole um, chapter <laughs> of mm-hmm. medical officers being reluctant to use the powers they have does make me more skeptical about the idea of municipal autonomy. Uh, you can give local officers or municipal councils or whoever, uh, you can give them all the legal power on paper that you want, but people still need to actually use the power they have. So, you know, we talk about charter cities, for example. I don't think you could write a charter for the city of Toronto that would be more permissive and more broadly worded than the way the Health Protection and Promotion Act is worded for local medical officers of health. Right. And you would still need a city council that was willing to actually use the powers it has. And so to take just <laughs> one other historical example, you know, the city of Toronto has larger, uh, has more expansive taxing powers than uh, other Ontario cities. Getting the city of Toronto to use those taxing powers for more than a decade now has been a constant political fight and the city council has gone back and forth. We used to tax the purchaser, the, the ownership of cars directly in the city. We no longer do. That was something that the uh, then mayor Rob Ford uh, ended. The city has taxing powers that it still is not using. Instead of using those powers, it tried to get pro- provincial permission to uh, levy a toll on uh, certain highways that run through the city. And those uh, f- those fees, those, those tolls would have fallen primarily on people who do not live in Toronto. That gives you a sense of what the politics of, uh, of revenue in Toronto are. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an extremely frustrating discussion because, again, you could give the city of Toronto more power. You can't make it use it, and you certainly can't make it use that power wisely. So maybe when it comes to COVID, municipalities wouldn't know what to do with extraordinary powers or would be reluctant to use them. One thing we did hear, though, is local governments continue to need funds to deal with the pandemic fallout and discretion to spend it. Even outside of COVID, financial autonomy for cities is a fairly constant refrain for mayors. But we'll explore that topic on another City Insight. Thank you to our guests, John Michael McGrath, Mayor Dan Matheson, and Mayor Drew Dilkins. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music. 
and City Insight is made in partnership with Spacing Magazine and Massey College. Executive producers are Alan Kaspersky and Matthew Blackett, and our creative consultant is Darren Chow. This podcast was made possible by Massey College, the Maytree Foundation, and the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. For more on our constitutional city crisis, the Massey City Summit will take place April 7th and 8th, 2021. Check out MasseyCitySummit.ca for updates about speakers and registration.